Vanessa Maggie here, and this week we're going to be switching it up on a Tuesday. We've got Rebecca Navin in the house. Yeah, you must all remember her from episode two, uh, our episode about touch and sex, where I talk too much about my own body hair. <laughs> and I talked about being lonely. Lonely. <laughs> so lonely. Not anymore. Am I right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So we're just three gals with a couple of wine, and uh, Rebecca, I'll let you intro our lovely guest who's going to be joining us soon. Yeah, we can't wait to have her here. And so her name is Angie Gunn. She's a therapist out of Portland, Oregon, and uh, she has her own kind of private practice. She talks about non-monogamy, and uh, she's kind of an expert in the field. She practices non-monogamy, but she also conducts workshops and works with people of all walks of life and uh, basically makes them realize that this is normal and she's going to come in and we're so excited to have her. Absolutely. We have no idea why she agreed to come on the show. (laughs) uh, She's in for it. Yeah. So, yeah. Yep. Perfect. Okay, good. Yeah, well, thank you so much for having me on the show, you three. I'm really glad to be here talking with you and I think it's a topic that I hear... um, some of the most questions I get from the world is about non-monogamy and, and we're all trying to figure out this world of life and love and relationships. And, um, we're finding more and more that the typical framework doesn't really work for everyone. Um, and the ways in which we've approached dating and love and sex and pleasure, um, a, we haven't really analyzed where did those origins come from? You know, why did, why do we practice monogamy? Why do we have a structure that's pretty restrictive and based on, um, a very narrow form of how people relate to one another. Um, we don't really, you typically analyze that and get some introspection around it. And then the next layer of that is action, understanding who you are as an individual and what relationship structure might actually be the most suitable for you as a person and help you thrive and connect in the ways that are most meaningful. So I talk a lot, a lot about finding that path and understanding those parts of yourself and fighting through the shame and stigma around just trying something new in a way that the world is really shocked by. So, um, yeah, in terms of my personal, uh, journey. I was previously a fundamentalist Christian, grew up in a really, um, difficult family environment in a really strongly religious, um, situation and spent a lot of my early years, uh, just trying to wrestle with who I wanted to be, what I wanted to do in terms of life and career. And I wanted to be, um, a missionary. I wanted to start churches in other countries and be really, um, oriented towards helping the world, saving the world, Mm -hmm. um, in, in sort of a very Christian framework. Um, and I got married when I was 20 to a person that the church had somewhat ordained for me um, in a way that was not super helpful, but was something I firmly believed in. And um, he ended up being abusive within about a year or so. Um, And so I was at that point finishing my graduate degree and um, or my undergraduate undergraduate degree and starting grad school and then working as a social worker um, and realizing this big dichotomy between what I was seeing with my clients, people that I was helping in abusive situations, people that go through a lot of change and transition personally and how much conflict there was with my personal belief system that wasn't really resonating with who I was anymore. Um, And also feeling this internal tension around, I don't know what sex is still and I'm not getting fulfilled and getting that kind of connection in this relationship, which I thought was what part of the reason you get married. Yeah. (laughs) This is is when you get more fun. It's when fireworks This is when you learn about your body and that was... Yeah, that wasn't happening in this relationship because that wasn't the thing that that was going to work with with us, and that wasn't who he was. Um, and there was a lot of guilt and shame and negativity around sex in my marriage, um, which made it really difficult for me to explore and understand my own bodies, my own body. Twenty five, I left my church and my husband, and I um, started over, which is a really beautiful and fun and scary, terrifying, crazy yeah. journey um, that will be for another podcast. Um, <laughs> And uh, I switched to, um, I was still working as a social worker now with a graduate degree and moved up in my field. Um, and I was working actually primarily with children and uh, found that it was pretty inconsistent with the lifestyle I came to find was the most suitable for me. Um, so as I was out of my marriage, primarily meant lots of sex. Yeah, okay. The thing that you do when you're trying to learn about your body and relationships um, outside of a religious framework. And so that in, in, in that process of having a lot of sex and a lot of connection with different people, I found that I was pretty kinky and that I oriented towards a BDSM lifestyle and also non-monogamous and that I preferred um, structures where there's a lot of flexibility in relationships and there's not 
um, restrictions around how much love and connection I can share with different kinds of people in different ways and letting it organically flow and create. Um, cool. And so I moved away from treating children and moved to my own practice um, and doing therapy for adults. And then I added my sex therapy certification so I could focus on sexuality related issues in terms of clinical setting. Um, cool. So that's, that's the very short version of up to current. Um, I have wow. a practice in Portland and I'm just recently getting it. So I have, um, I'm adding in a, a bigger office space and workshop spaces, um, doing teaching and I'm writing a book and I'm working on, I run a nonprofit in Portland that we do sexuality events and education and do lots of community stuff, helping people have more conversations about sex and pleasure. Wow. That's, uh, yeah. that's awesome. Good. That's yeah. <laughs> you're pretty ballsy. That's amazing. Yeah. Um, just like one thing that I was wondering, so for you, you, when you were 25, you said you left your church and your marriage and kind of discovered on your own um, who you were like sexually and just like as a person as well. How like did you find that group of people that guided you? Like it's who how long did it take for you to find that community? Like what was that path? Or was it did it come from within? Yeah. Um, I think I knew immediately sex was the biggest thing that I was missing in terms of my self-discovery wow, okay. and my um, it was an area that I felt like this huge void in and had no idea, you know, how to even pleasure myself, what kinds of things I liked, how, True, what kind yeah. of fantasy mm-hmm. um, world was meaningful to me. You know, I remember when I was married, hiding in the closet, masturbating to an erotica that I bought at Barnes and Noble because I couldn't, <laughs> I couldn't have like the paperback, <laughs> the paperback, <laughs> yeah. Right. So like, I went, secretly went to Barnes and Noble and bought this erotica, and, like hid it in the closet. And I would, yeah. like, that was, that was real. And so to have this opportunity now to like, myself and my body in whatever way I saw fit was really beautiful. And I think there was a lot of pendulation around maybe too much to one side or another at various points, but really kind of finding that balance of different partners and finding, I had one specific partner, um, that I dated probably for the longest during that kind of my slutty period, which I, I still identify as a slut, but it was, I definitely have periods in my life where I did more of that than other periods. Right. Um, that was really sex positive and really open to lots of different kinds of exploration and touch and pleasure and, um, exposed me to a lot of different avenues that I had never really had space to be um, and gave me a lot of emotional connection and validation to kind of go through that. Um, but in terms of finding community, uh, that was all happening when I was living in Wisconsin, which is a much harder place to be when you're any kind of sex weirdo. Yeah. Um, and so I actually moved to Portland. I met a, new, I met a new partner and we moved to Portland together. And um, in, that, in the course of that relationship, excuse me, we found a huge community in Portland, which is part of the reason we moved here. Um, there's tons of access to kinky folks and mm-hmm. non-monogamous folks and lots of meetups and groups and events. Right? So that was really nice to find my people cool. in a way that felt really authentic and good. Yeah. Cause I feel like everyone knows that it exists, but I don't really understand like how you access it or how it comes about. Like I'm sure there's like parties you can go to or whatever, but that just seems insanely intimidating. And, um, I mean, one thing you I said, pardon? I can give some tips on how to get access if you'd like. Yeah. I mean, in Toronto, like <laughs> we're, we're a big city, right? Like, we, yeah. There are definitely, there are definitely sex freaks of Toronto. They're, they exist. They're there. Sure, yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, I think that the easiest way to get access is searching um, in groups. So there's Facebook groups, there's meetup groups, there's um, FetLife, which is like Facebook for kinky and mm-hmm. um, other folks. Um, so, and you can, and you can get a FetLife profile. So those are all places to start in terms of just finding connections of different kinds of people. Um, munches are good events to start going to if you're interested in like more alternative sex practices. Um, a munch is basically just a meet and greet with different people sitting around talking and usually at a restaurant or a bar. Like a so there's nothing happening. It's just kind of, is it a, is a munching lunch? Munch. Oh, it usually happened in a place where there was eating that happened. So it's really just a non-play oriented place. There's not, there's no nudity. There's nothing happening. It's just like have conversation, Cool. which is nice. And like non-threatening. Place. Yes. Mm, the munch. The munch. I got the, the munchies. Munch. Yeah. I got the munchies. I need to go, go. Yeah. Huh. Cool. The munch. Um, Facebook groups, are, Facebook groups are really highly used right now, too, amongst mm-hmm. non-monogamy communities. So just search on Facebook in your local area, too. Yeah. Mm. Cool. And one other thing I just have to ask about, what do you mean by you identify as, like, a slut? And what does that mean to you? And how would that compare to someone else who is also maybe, like, promiscuous and um, has, like, kinks but doesn't identify as a slut, quote-unquote? Yeah. Um, I think that... <laughs> 
the word slut is a non-threatening word to me, and it's a word that I identify and choose for myself, but not one that I would have other people ascribe to me necessarily. Right. Oh, okay. So, um, I mean, my lovers and people in my life can call me that, and I enjoy that. I, w- I went to a conference recently. My name tag instead of, instead of my pronouns, it, it just said it said whore and slut. Just me giving permission to people to kind of be playful with the way that they they identify in terms of their sexuality. Um, so yeah, I think I, I use I use, I use it to describe myself as being. There's there's a meme on the internet that talks about um, I'm not a slut. I just have a friendly vagina. And yeah, <laughs> <I think laughs> welcoming, you know, <laughs> welcoming vagina. Right, my, my, my vagina likes to have lots of visitors, and it's just really <laughs> yeah. Um, I think I'm really open to different sexual experiences and I'm not, I'm not in a relationship structure that limits that, that ability to have that kind of connection. So it's more like, I like organic play and connection with people in ways that, that feels authentic and and can grow and change without any expectations around what it's supposed to be or who I'm supposed to be, who has control over my genitals. And, um, in the workshop that Rebecca went to in, 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 um, Guelph, that was a big part of our, our conversation was how do we take back control and take out power and coercion in relationships and primarily around you get to decide what you do with your genitals. You get to decide um, who has access and it's always your say and no one else can manage the way that you engage with your own body um, and really shifting the, the way that we use power and manipulation and coercion based on our relationship structures to manage our own insecurities and our own fears. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So just for, just for like some context for the, maybe some of the, like the, listeners in the future with for the background is that Angie and I we met at the University of Guelph sexuality conference in May and Angie your topic obviously was be mind dimensions of control and coercion in mononormative culture so yeah as you were saying talking about who whose property is like bodies and property and that sort of thing so yeah, um, but I do have a question because, you know, one of the things re- regarding being poly, there are, it's not like poly is, um, is an open field. There's still sort of limitations and boundaries, right? I mean, so one of the challenges with non-monogamy is it is a bigger umbrella term. So I, use, I like to use the word um, CNM, consensual non-monogamy, to, to represent everyone who identifies with some sort of openness. Um, so it can be polyamory, it can be swinger, it can be um, monogamish, it can be... Monogamish? Monogamish. So mishmash. Yeah, <laughs> it describes couples who are mostly monogamous, but occasionally have like a dalliance here and there. Oh, so gotcha. a little bit. A little okay, <laughs> makes sense. That makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I mean, there's lots of different structures, and so it's not it's not really um, safe to make any assumptions about what someone involved in non-monogamy. Um, how they structure their lives or their relationships. Um, so it's really a nice opportunity to talk to them and ask, how do you find um, ways to make sure your needs are met and also manage challenges that come up in the relationship? Um, the biggest shift for me around conversations that I have with clients and with um, when I do workshops on it is shifting away from using your relationship structure or rule, rules you might create in your relationship as a way to manage your own emotions. So um, uh, a valid rule or agreement to have is we're not going to have sex with people without condoms because we want to make sure we're really safe and we're going to make sure everyone we have sex with gets tested regularly and these are the tests we want to make sure they have and we really care about each other's well-being it's a it's a boundary for your personal well-being it's an agreement in your relationship versus um setting rules like you can't see Susie on the weekends because the weekends are our time it's exerting control over another person's relationship or another person's interaction with another person that's outside the scope of your individual interaction. Right. So really it's about, yes, you'll make agreements, but you want to understand what's the purpose of this agreement. What, what is the, what is the reason for me needing to set this boundary or me needing to come to this conclusion? And if it's just about your own insecurity, your own fear, your own uncertainty, your concern about abandonment, your concern about safety, um, I mean, those are all things that are great places for you to work through and talk about the emotions versus seeking to make some kind of legislation in the relationship right. that can actually use to be pretty mm-hmm. prohibitive. Okay. So the focus is on trust and well, sort of the the relationship versus the people in it and your own emotions and insecurities. It's more so like, a, you know, creating a well-oiled machine. Uh, before the people in it themselves is is that safe to say um i would describe it more like you're, you're everyone's learning really well about how to manage their own shit yeah. <laughs> so the more 
you get it managing your own emotions and your own challenges, you can enter into relationships more ethically and freely and come into it without the burdens of expectations and of pressure. Right. So you're really confident in your own well-being and, and ways you meet your needs and things that you need. And you can come to your partner and say, these are the things I'd like from you. Cool. You can provide those. Cool. You can't. This other person can provide that. Great. We're on the same page. Um, versus sometimes what happens is lots of, uh, unclear expectations and burdens are placed into relationships Mm -hmm. that are things like you're going to be my everything, which is the challenge of monogamy. We have this assumption around this person has to be your best friend and your best lover and similar hobbies and have compatible household interests and cleanliness. Yeah. Similar food taste. Like, oh, we've, we've, there's so much pressure put on traditional relationships right now um, that non-monogamy really gives you the opportunity to eliminate all of that and say, we're going to be really clear. We're going to negotiate every aspect of it. We're going to talk about thoughts and feelings, and we're going to support one another in finding the path to getting those needs met. Do you think that like the pressure that you're speaking of that is in monogamous relationship today, like that I've, I def- that resonates with me because when I think of um, poly relationships or just anyone that's like a more than two people, it kind of stresses me out. I'm like, I'm struggling managing what I have now. I can't imagine adding someone else into that context. Do you think that the, that type of intenseness that comes from two people is why that so many people don't understand poly relationships or why they kind of shy away from it or why it's not as popular just because they can't understand the intensity in terms of like this feeling of devotion or love. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of. Yeah. I think that we all really want to be seen and want to be pursued and loved and found yes. by someone. <laughs> and we, we've been given this fantasy that, that, that that's what relationships are. You know, yeah. every Disney movie, every movie we've ever seen in our right. entire lives, yeah. you know, portrays this, this image of like being chased and, and captured and like wooed. And, um, and I think the challenge with that is that eventually that fades. So even if you find that person that does that thing, mm-hmm. that, that isn't always a lot. Um, that doesn't actually translate to life together. <laughs> that doesn't translate to how do we actually do this thing that we're trying to do every day. Which will, well, life is really hard. There's a lot right now in our world. And so we need a person, we need a person or people that can be on our team. Um, and that doesn't translate into that romantic ideal. And so I think mm-hmm. part of it is a, going back to sort of the foundations of marriage. We think about, um, I really like uh, Stephanie Kuntz's book, the history, a history of marriage. Um, and she talks a lot about one of the challenges with our modern conception of marriage is it's only 40 years old. We literally have a conception of marriage that's really young um, and it has this ideal around romanticism and love and all of these things being aligned. It's about property. Marriage was about ownership. Marriage was about um, economics, trading, goods and services. It was about position. It was about power. It was about politics. Mm -hmm. Um, It was about all these other things besides love. And it's only been in the last 40 years that we've really linked these two things. Um, And so I think there's a lot of, I think, unpacking of that history also that helps in having these conversations with partners. Like, cool, where did you get your idea about this idealized marriage? Okay, that was your mom's idea. That's what your grandma told you. Mm -hmm. Great, what do you actually want? (laughs) How do we shift our understanding of life relationships to have it be a more fulfilling thing to you personally? Damn. Yeah. (laughs) Ah, Am I doing life right? I don't know. (laughs) Oh, God. And so just to piggyback off off of that last statement, um, that was one of the questions I had, too. It's like, you know, with one person, sometimes it's hard to coordinate and figure out, like, you know, where do you want to end up in five years? And what are your life goals? And where do you want to go for dinner? Yeah. Yeah. Even what do you want to eat tonight? So is having two or more, do you ever find that difficult? Or like you say, do different people bring different things to the table and you just find a way to make it work? I think that life plans are an illusion. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you could be married and be in a happy monogamous relationship and say, we're going to have kids in three years and we're going to buy a house. and we're going to go on this vacation and that's all an illusion. It could all change any day. Right. So this idea that we have some sense of security or certainty that that's happening and that we, we can, we can feel safe in our lives is, is a fallacy that we tell ourselves and make us feel better. <laughs> Yeah. But every relationship is every single day entering into choices that you choose to be with this person. You choose to engage in um, love and connection and moving towards one another. And you're continuing to do that every single day, no matter what's happening.
happening. And you might have a month or two that you fall off, but you come back together and you choose that. So I think, you know, being a non-monogamous just gives you more people that you're continuing on that path with and continuing to choose to move towards one another. Um, and so some you might have life plans with, some you may not. Some you may have plans and then they shift and then you find another, then another person jumps in and there's new plans. So I think right. it's, it's, it's about more... Um, being able to be comfortable with the uncertainty around you yeah, know, really yeah. enjoy life and the, kind of like the things that are happening right now without needing to have this really clear, the term in the community is escalator relationship. Um, and I actually wrote a post on my website about shifting from the escalator to treadmill model of a oh, relationship. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The marathon. The escalator like goes up and you can't get off and you're stuck and you have to go to the next level. Yeah. <laughs> Whereas if you could like move, just keeps going what more one or more treadmills you can kind of like find your own pace and find your own rhythm mm. and really shift away from this expectation around what are the next steps in a relationship yeah Angie maybe you want to fuck them for the next six months okay. yeah <laughs> Angie one thing that uh, came to my mind as you were talking about that was um, I'll speak for myself when I've come out of some longer relationships it feels really catastrophic you know because it feels like you know, you have these plans and you have this idea that you think something's going to work out. And I do, my guess is maybe people who are in the poly community are a little bit more resilient to that kind of, like, I wonder, I just wonder if there would be like a, a study on breakups and who is better equipped to deal with, I don't know, that kind of change and ambiguity. That would be interesting. Or even like yeah. you said, they have their shit figured out a bit more than everybody like they know yeah yeah right i mean there's a lot of um there's a lot of new research in the poly community that's coming out which i really appreciate and a lot of some great folks that are doing that research and the book i'm working on is with some of those researchers uh and i think so far what we know of the research is poly folks are just like everybody else we we fuck up our relationships just as well as everyone else yeah okay so there's not really a privileging in the the community that nominate individuals are better at this or or worse at that. I mean, there definitely is different skill sets and there's certain people who are more, I think, more able to be in a non-monogamous relationship style and can manage that huge paradigm shift in terms of worldview. Um, So there are more personality, I think, traits that that make it easier for some people, but I wouldn't say that they're better at managing those kinds of challenges necessarily. (laughs) Um, I think that they, they do have more privileging or um, acceptance around the diversity of their own sort of needs. And I think that means they have a little bit more self-awareness about what those needs are and how they communicate them. Um, but I mean, if you read, I, I caution folks against reading the polyamory discussion groups on Facebook because they're literally just like hundreds of people sharing how terrible their lives and relationships are. Ah, okay. <laughs> Like any other shitty dating sites in yeah. terms of people talking about it, but doesn't mean that that's how everyone is. Just means sure. that the same problems that come up in any relationships come up when you add three more to your, to your mix. Yeah, yeah. that yeah. makes sense. And um, I guess, like, speaking of problems in, in relationships, <laughs> I'm not going to go into my own, don't worry. But um, uh, yeah, just like with the. Um, <laughs> um, with the some I was noticing like with poly relationships Rebecca was um, mentioning from the talk you did in Guelph about um, there being like certain hierarchies um, within poly relationships and I was just kind of got me thinking about uh, like women and how like they're like treated in a relationship if there's any issues of like sexism within that um, kind of realm of of uh, Mm-hmm. Thanks. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, again, going back to this history of marriage, relationships, marriage specifically has been predominantly male oriented yeah. in terms of male dominance, mm-hmm. um, in terms of women were actual property. Women couldn't yeah. make choices. Women could be abused in relationships legally. And so I think there's a lot of um, kind of holdovers that are present in any relationship. Okay. Um, and binary so I don't think that there it can be as absolute as we may have talked about it before um, because this these dynamics can come up with different gendered folks and gender queer folks as well um, but it, it is true that there are aspects of sexism and misogyny and the patriarchy that influence the way that non-monogamy um, is play, playing out as well and I think that there's a lot of conversation happening right now amongst intersectional communities and voices that are seeking to shift to the shift the conversation hmm. um shift it to be more female empowering shift it to being more um equal respect and rights in terms of expression um noticing ways that marginalized communities um 
have a difficult time with getting access. And there's a lot of criticism of the non-monogamy polyamory communities of being elitist in white spaces, mm-hmm. um, which is just is true because it takes, you know, to have time and money and resources and energy to engage in more than one relationship is a privilege and is a thing that um, we don't always talk about. Um, so I think, you know, being able to, like, to, to name these things that it's happening, name that it's true that um, it can feel elitist and classist at times. Um, and also... There is space for people of color and people with disabilities and people with different kinds of sexual expression yeah. in the communities. And that is, we have a, as a community have to work harder to be more deliberate about creating those spaces for people right. and creating opportunities for those kinds of connections. Um, and also, I, I hear a lot of polyamorous folks talk about, you know, their criteria for partners they're looking for is, yeah. especially when there's a hierarchy, um, mm-hmm. They talk about a primary partner is usually when when someone has a primary, secondary designations. Primary partner is like their life partner, their person they live with usually, person they have lots of like intertangled lives with. Um, secondary is you know lower in terms of um, time and energy and investment, um, and can sometimes feel belittled in terms of those interactions. and needs to be really highly consensually engaged in and, and discussing what kind of dynamics those are. Um, but sometimes when those hierarchies are existing, it can be more difficult to always get your needs met and express um, what you're wanting. And then when you are looking for certain kinds of people, the criticism I hear a lot is someone will say, I want someone who's low drama, someone who's not crazy, someone who doesn't have any crazy exes. <laughs> yeah. just be like, you're going to make me crazy. I had a partner once tell me that they had, they wanted to, they were looking for a secondary and they had, they said they could give me, um, 10%. They gave me this concrete percentage of like wow. their time and energy and like self. I was like, um, cool. I don't really know if I like being created into a number system. Yeah. That makes me just feel very people? fixed. Yeah. And so is there usually, is there it's not really straight, but it looks like, <laughs> is there typically a, a conversation like that beforehand where you kind of decide like, look, this is what I'm currently looking for in a new partner or partners, or does it sort of unfold organically? Um, I highly recommend people having really clear conversations like that. So being really upfront about this is what I, this is what I'm looking for. This is what I'm, this is what I have capacity for. This is my time. This is my energy. This is my other relationships in my life. So that no matter what dynamic you enter into, whether it's someone you see once a month to have sex with or somebody you're wanting for a weekly contact, um, that you're really clear about those expectations and boundaries up front. Yeah, so I think that's, that's the biggest problem. Right? Secondary is yeah. switch. I want for me really intense connection. And then, okay, now I can give you one Tuesday a month at mm-hmm. 3 p.m. Yeah, that seems uh, <laughs> like, super why don't we do necessary. That, like, in, if you're just like wanting to be casual, why can't we do that in normal, like... I don't know, (laughs) but, um, so the workshops that you do and, um, sessions that you run, are they mostly with people who are in, um, non-monogamous relationships or are you also like folks on monogamous relationships as well? Um, I do a little bit of everything. So I, and I'm just making this transition into doing more workshops and things. I'm getting this new workshop space in my new office. Um, but yeah, yeah. everyone can use better relationship skills. I'm, you know, when I do, when I do therapy services with individuals, 80% of clients I see have relationship challenges. Yeah. Um, none of us are good at relationships. We're not really yeah. given a framework for that. We're not taught it in schools. We're not, yeah. our parents don't usually teach us a whole lot about concretely, how do we be in relationships? So I think, you know, there's a lot of learning to be done, no matter what your structure is about how to be really good at boundaries, how to take care of your own emotions, how to manage, um, your wants and needs. I don't know what's your partner's responsibility and what's not. And mm-hmm. when this need is just your need and it's okay if it exists in the ether and that, that you don't need to put it onto someone else. You know, so lots of <laughs> I think opportunities to learn how to engage with people better and, and how to um, do this thing that we call love and life and pleasure better. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think I specialize in alternative relationships because there's not as many folks having those conversations. Yeah. So being able to like, and having experience doing it personally, it's a lot easier for me to have those conversations in groups and say, Oh yeah, I've totally been there. And yeah. Being yeah, empathetic. Yeah. You know? so I think it helps to be able to bridge that gap. Cool. Um, if I may. Yeah. Uh, Angie, I, I know that as part of your job, you, you're kind of the expert among a group of a thousand therapists kind of in this area. Uh, that's the case, right? Uh, yes. I mean, I would know a number, but there's, yeah, there's like a smaller number. That's especially <laughs> this. Hundreds, hundreds. And, uh, I was, I guess I was wondering what's the perception about, um, about poly among, like, have you gotten a sense among those therapists and therapists in general, 
what's their perception on poly and uh, it, what's the biggest misconception that they hold? Oh, that's a good one. <laughs> yeah. Um, like, I, I, I feel really it? sad for clients who come to me after having seen another therapist that didn't do a good job with it. It really hurts my heart for people to feel shame or guilt or um, prejudice around a lifestyle choice. And so I think, you know, the most common complaint I hear from clients from prior other therapists is therapists who say things like, um, well, the problem in your relationship is because you're non-monogamous. <laughs> like, oh just stop God. doing that thing and it'll get better. Wow. Which has been a real thing therapists have said to people. Um, instead of, again, seeing the nuance, like, these are relationship problems, whether it's open or not, and maybe they're not mm-hmm. doing openness well, and there's ways you can adjust and do it better, but it doesn't mean that openness is the problem. Um, I commonly hear a lot of shame and negativity around someone who's had, like, any cheating behavior and then, then transition to an open relationship as a way to create a structure that worked better for them. Because a lot of people that cheat on their partners don't actually want to be monogamous in the first place. Right. And they didn't think they had another choice. Mm-hmm. So giving people options and ways to have, how do you enter into instead an ethical and supportive relationship? <clears throat> a lot of therapists that see that as a, yeah. as a cop out or as a, like um, a way to take the side of a, an offender, um, which isn't always, again, it's not a helpful perspective. There's no one, there's no one, there's no bad person. Even when there's cheating happening, it's, it's about personal wants and needs and pleasure and finding ways to meet that and make that happen. Mm-hmm. Um, and our personal wants and needs and pleasure aren't bad. <laughs> we may yeah. go about finding ways to manage them poorly. You know, the same way that like, I'm hungry, I could eat a whole tub of ice cream or I could like have a salad. The way I manage <laughs> my want isn't bad. The way yeah. that I choose yeah, to express it may not have been really the best. cool way of putting it. But the want is okay. Mm, yeah. And same thing with sex. You know, the way that we want, I want them, I want a kinky gangbang cool, let me figure out how to have that in a safe way that's going to make everyone feel really good about themselves and not going to harm my partners or my own well-being. So, like, figuring out what what's what, what are actually the paths to pleasure and connection. Um, and I don't think they're... Well, most therapists don't have any sexuality education. That's one, I think, huge gap in training. Yeah. And so... Really? Find therapists that know things about sex. Yeah. Oh most God. therapists get zero sexuality education. <laughs> I feel like that's, like, 90% of or like maybe one what people need in there. Yeah. 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 Whoa, that's... And, yeah, okay. Like one class, and that's about it. That's yeah, like yeah. a Freud class. Um, so yeah, and then also, I just want to say, like doctors don't get a lot. Doctors don't. No. And so yeah, same with doctors. Doctors don't really either. Doctors get like very basic anatomy. I had a doctor that didn't know how the clitoris worked. That was I was having a conversation. Uh, <laughs> yep, and there was a, my friend who works at a medical school in um in the Midwest and was telling me that the, the, the diagram of the genitalia that was this like three D diagram didn't have the clitoris at all. Oh my god. <laughs> It wasn't in the model. Not modest. It's not <laughs> modest to have that thing. Who needs maturity? <laughs> Who needs female pleasure? Whatever. Yeah. <laughs> Whoa. Okay. That's a mind blow. Okay. Yeah. Like huge gaps in our system around getting getting a basic education about sex and relationships and bodies to, to therapists and, and medical professionals. Yeah. Um, when there's a few organizations that are working on improving that and, and fixing, filling in some of those gaps for people, but it's just, it's an ongoing challenge. Yeah. But I mean, it's good for you because you run a business on this, right? Yeah. yeah. Upgraded office space. You know? <laughs> More office space. And now you're writing a book? Yeah, yeah. that's great. Congrats. <laughs> people like hearing me talk about weird sex stuff. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess we all just wanted, you know, time to carry. So we'll um, figure it out. And, and by the way, Angie, you how long? <laughs> Sorry? I just said, I, I believe in you. You can do it too. <laughs> <laughs> and I wanted to ask Angie, how long have you been in a poly relationship for? Um, I am going on four years. Oh, congratulations. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, four years. And can we ask about the yeah, current... <laughs> designations that I've had other periods in my life where I had multiple partners so like maybe the last 10 years at various points mm-hmm. fair right mm-hmm. is that like a mishmogany wait it's like a mish Mon- monogamous monogamous sure <laughs> I have one partner that I've been with for seven years and so uh, he and I specifically opened our relationship about four years ago um, more deliberately but prior to that I had, I've had periods where I had multiple partners simultaneously mm-hmm. okay mm-hmm. cool, cool. Okay. Um, one of the questions I had was, uh, I'd like to kind of move, maybe talk about, are most people that you know in the poly community out about their lifestyle? Mm. Oh, good one. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah, I, I couldn't make any generalizations because I think it's a it's really complex, um, and every person is different in terms of that. I mean, I think it's it also re- highly depends on where you live and, and who you are and what your community is. It's much harder in a small town, much harder in really conservative cities. Um, yeah. You know, there's some fear around even there. Like I'm out as a therapist as as. Um, um, but it's really hard for other therapists that, that could have threatened threats to their license or to their, to really? their career. Um, so I think that it really depends on where you live, what your job is, what your community is. Um, so Portland, there's a lot more people that are out because this is a pretty open-minded place and we have, we are really highly built on progressive, um, uh, political structures, but, um, other places, you know, I hear from folks in small towns or other cities where um, they, they fear for their safety or well-being by being out or from ostracization from their families or workplace. There's still a lot of, a lot of shame. You know, even my own family, my, my, my own relative had said, said, said to me that clearly I'm bad at relationships because I can't just keep one. <laughs> wow. Gotta catch them all, okay? <laughs> <laughs> um, so we, yeah, so we, we can't really predict who's out or not and, and say whether that's how often it, how common it is, but I also think that one of the, regardless of what your decisions are regarding it, creating some kind of community where you can be seen authentically is really important. So even if you can't be out to many people, at least having one or two people that are in your local community that you that you can be your total self with and process what's happening is really important. Um, I have a lot of clients that, you know, sometimes I'm the only person that they know that they're talking about this stuff with, which is really tough because I can't be there, you know, in the middle of the night if they just need, like, somebody mm. to cry on. Yeah. And process so it's really good to have just some local community Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, Angie, like, how do you, how would you recommend that people who are monogamous can be better allies? person that's ever been in a polyamorous relationship and um for a while he just didn't he's married now and just like didn't mention anything of it but then when he did I think he was met with just a lot of shock so I can imagine that's part of the reason that a lot of people are like well you know if they've decided on monogamy for themselves it's like maybe I will just keep this to myself because it's just kind of a hassle to go through the entire story and people have a lot of questions and it's it's often met with a lot of shock okay with our wants like I think that a lot of us in our society at least in like 
Northwestern society because that's the one I know. Um, think of wants as like temptation and, and something that's so bad, especially taboo, when with yeah. other with other partners and like you're tempted to explore like other people and that type of thing. So really over hurt, overcoming that hurdle and it's not like cheating or anything like that is what I would see as the hardest. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. It's a big shift. Sorry. No, no problem. We had a, we had a dog come in. <laughs> very cute. Very cute. Nice to meet you. Sorry. Dog. <laughs> it was very distracting for a second. Um, but. And so Angie, you mentioned definitely open communication is obviously a huge element to well, any successful relationship really. Um, what would you say are some other things, some other common ground that people entering a polyamorous relationship need to share? really good communication skills. Uh, I think having a common or shared value system is really important. So being able to talk about um, your beliefs around independence, beliefs around decision-making, beliefs around gender roles, and even just understanding of what gender is and how it manifests, um, understanding about what role sex plays in your life and how it impacts decisions that are made. Um, One of the most common challenges I run into with couples is mismatches in terms of sex, like the beliefs and the role and the power it has, the role it plays, or the um, function it serves in a relationship. Um, So being able to be really clear with one another about what you're looking for and how that manifests. Um, Having the ability to be pretty introspective about what your needs are in relationships. A lot of times we're in relationships and we don't really ever think about it. We're like, oh, this is what we do. Right. We date people and we go out and we find build a life together and eventually we live together instead of really being clear about oh wait I actually really hate having someone in my space and I want my own space and I I just want someone to like watch TV with me twice a night twice a week yeah <laughs> I want, I want sex on Saturday and TV watching Tuesday and Thursday. Yeah. <laughs> those are my relationship needs. So being able to like be really clear about that and that you can actually ask for all those things and practicing asking for what you actually want. From yeah. Um, mm. It takes a lot of courage and stepping into a brave space to be fully comfortable in the things that, that you're interested in, but that's okay. Yeah. And yeah. I dated that I was like, I don't really want to kiss you because I'm not really feeling the face stuff, but I want to do stuff to your but cool. Can we do that like once a week? Yeah. <laughs> like, and that was okay. Like be able to ask for the thing that I wanted with this person. And they could say, if they weren't okay with that, if kissing was a non-negotiable for them, then they can say, no, that I need this thing and we're not a good fit. Cool. Let's move on. Cool. Right. So like more friends. Yeah. You know, so be able to like be more clear about what are things that you like in terms of sex, in terms of pleasure, in terms of life and moving towards a person that, um, that you find those intersections with is really, can be really beautiful and can be really liberating. Um, mm-hmm. and can help you actually grow in areas that you didn't know were a part of your identity because you're having that clear conversation. So um, I also think being able to like talk about breakups in advance. Uh, my friend Liz, who did, we did the workshop together mm-hmm. at Guelph, talks a lot about that, but negotiating what will happen when we break up. <laughs> it's likely it's possible. What are we going to do about that? How will we treat each other? How do we show care and respect for one another, for our communities, for our families, for yeah. our friends? Really? Um, because probably wow. networks can get really expansive once you start connecting with people's partners and other people's families. Mm-hmm. So being able to be, be aware of, you're not entering into this network of people of community and we have an obligation to care for one another and provide that respect and support no matter what that's great it sounds like a lot of monogamous relationships seem like need a crash course in, in <laughs> non-monogamy yeah, like, yeah. that's uh, a lot of maturity, yeah i mean obviously not yeah that's awesome. That kind of those kind of conversations are not that easy to have. Yeah, this is not a one on one. Like is this like, is the ideal. This but, is, yeah, yeah. No kidding. Like, yeah, no. I, I, I definitely like the one on one class is way more simple. <laughs> mm-hmm. This is just like ideals, like good good ideas. Um, yeah, yeah. And I don't always do them well in my personal life, so I think you know we all just we do the best we can, and we try. Relationships are really hard. They're really emotional, and yeah. our ourselves are put into these things that we are trying to engage with the world and understand how do we flow through this universe in a way that doesn't feel like shit. <laughs> right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Without hurting everyone yeah. like, along the way. For sure. Yeah. And right. um, Angie, one of the things I noted down that you talked about, uh, you and Liz talked about was Peggy Kleinplatz. In, and uh, I guess she, she wrote a book and she talked about a relationship bill of rights. Does that ring a bell? Uh, bill of rights is actually from Franklin Vo's book, More Than Two. Oh, right. That was it. Yeah, that was the book. Okay, yeah. Can you, do you feel comfortable talking? Not not that it's your work, but do you, are you comfortable yeah. with that? Yeah, I mean, I definitely encourage everyone to read Franklin's book. Franklin does, and, and Franklin Bo and Eve Rickert, actually. Um, um, they both do a really great job in this book of giving a lot of how-tos. It's pretty, um, 
it's pretty dense. So it's, I like to kind of skip around to sections that are relevant to the time. Um, but it gives it a lot of really concrete um, information and feedback about how do you navigate open relationships. Um, but then there is this relationship bill of rights that I think everybody should should refer to and look at at some point. You can actually Google on their website more than two relationship bill of rights and it'll pop up for you. Um, but it's a really great description of what are some basic rules we want to apply to how we engage with other people. Um, and things that we don't really talk about again in standard relationships. Um, very different than like a marriage vows, which are weird promises based on <laughs> based on forever yeah. sickness ended the house yeah. <laughs> right. and this is a good contrast to that because it's, it's really just here's some good stuff try to be respectful to each other be honest care about one another's needs do your best really concrete <laughs> things that are I think nice to refer back to often Serious. Cool. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's handy. Yeah. Yeah. Good to know. That's great. And sure, sorry, what was the name again? Franklin. Franklin Bud Records. The website's more, more than, than two. two. More than two. Uh, okay. Just search for more than two relationship It'll come up. That's the one. I can send a link to you too if, if you'd like that. Yeah. We will. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Even, yeah, just like from today, from this talk, I feel like I've learned so much more about how we just take for granted like relationships every usually everyone's in one you know it's just kind of I think I'm doing it right but there is so much that you can focus on and, and learn together to actually make it a bit more enjoyable and respectful for everyone yeah involved and, and just to gain perspective outside of your own so yeah this has been really really insightful thank you yeah well, I think one last comment I had is um, you know this, this week has been a lot of the, the Me Too um, Facebook um, social media campaigns going around you guys yes yeah those of you who haven't, haven't seen it on Facebook there's been a campaign going around of folks saying Me Too the reference that they've had sexual assault or sexual harassment in their lives and I think the one conversation that's bringing up with people is the importance of um, needing to talk about consent progressively in relationships beyond just when you first meet someone but that you're always entering into um conscious and consensual negotiation, um, talking about wants and needs, being really clear about what you're comfortable with. Even with your partner you've been with for years, being able to say, I'm not really interested in that thing, but I'd love this thing instead. Um, being really clear about managing any coercive dynamics or any guilt or manipulation or shame that's being used to motivate behavior, um, and really entering into all interactions we have with other people in a way that approaches um, them with, you are a independent, beautiful creature that I want to engage with in some way, is that okay? You know, uh-huh. when I'm yeah. with strangers, they laugh at me. I, I always ask, would you like a stranger? I'll say, would you like a handshake or a fist bump or a hug? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and I ask, how do you want me to engage with you, if at all? And giving people those kind of opportunities versus the assumption that you're going to shake my hand because I'm meeting you for the first time or, um, you know, forcing kiddos to kiss grandmas. Right. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, because it's all... Everyone would be so much more comfortable. Yeah. It's, 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 it's all social constructs that you never even think about. You just do them because you that's what to. you're supposed to do. Yeah, huh. that's a great point. All things feed into rape culture. All those things feed into, like, especially, mm-hmm. you know, femme-centric individuals being expected to, like, give and receive affection in ways that they may not want. And yeah, really I hate touching. There's never any assumptions. <laughs> Sex and contact and touch is always a gift. It's never an assumption. It's yeah. Sure. Yeah, that's a great way to think of it as a gift. Yep. Mm-hmm. I don't particularly like uh, hugs or holding hands or anything like that. <laughs> yeah. I'll yeah. stop telling you you're bad at hugging. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> she Thank that. you. She admits that. Um, Angie, like, I, I'm obviously I knew this was going to be a great interview. I don't think I realized that I'm going to have to listen to this at least two or three times to pick out all the nuggets in what you were saying. Yeah. And I also think that you're extremely courageous for how like your journey and what, what you've gone through and the self-reflection that you've done and also the way you help other people. So, and it's just, yeah. And, and, and the books and the workshops mm-hmm. and I'm really the office space. <laughs> yeah. I'm excited. It's going to, it's going to be good. Yeah. Ooh, one question I thought would be fun to end off with. Um, I don't know if it's appropriate, but we'll find out. But what's like one of the most interesting uh, sex toys you've ever had, and why? Yeah, good. Most interesting. Um, I mean, in terms of like, I liked it, or in terms of it was weird. Um, Either or. Maybe one of each. I don't know. (laughs) You can. I'm trying to know what I have handy to show you. She's looking um, around her room for those listening. Yeah. <laughs> what, what do I have around to reference? Yeah. Demonstration. Um, I mean, I really like the rechargeable Hitachis. It's my favorite. Um, Hitachis are 
my jam, and I think that uh, we that's a dildo, right? Desensitization based on vibration. If you need vibration to get off, then we'll do it as much as you need and add it into your sex and teach your partners how to do it. Um, there's a lot of shame and, shame and stigma around it that's not helpful and useful. Um, sex toys are cool, so yeah, I think rechargeable Hitachi is really great, portable, accessible, just as intense as the regular Hitachi, but um, easy to take places. Is that a dildo for for us prudes? Is, is that um, it's I'll a show it to you one time. Teach us. It's a really big vibrator. Okay. Oh yeah, like it's, oh, it's like the powerful. one that looks like a massager. Yes. Oh, very. Close. Oh, okay. Here's a picture of it on a mug that my friend loves. <laughs> oh, okay. okay, it's OG, you know, the vibrator. Everyone okay, says it's gotcha. a neck massager. Oh, okay. How many dildos I have, too. Oh. Yes. Oh, those ah! are. Oh. Oh, it's like a little plug. Yeah. <laughs> I think that maybe the strangest toy is the, the womanizer, which I'm not actually a fan of, but I have it. I have it the name much. sounds um, creepy. Yeah. It's, 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 a lot of people talk about it very glowingly, um, but you need like a firm suction on your clitoris. Okay. So uh, just to just. Hard to maintain. Yeah, describe what it looks like. It looks like one of those face washing things. Yeah. You wash your face with. Yep. So you put like a firm suction here. Okay. I'm actually missing its thing. Yeah, you put a firm suction against your clitoris, mm -hmm. and, then it, and then it just like sucks and vibrates in this really tiny little hole. Okay. If you don't have a firm suction, it doesn't really work, and it's like super intense just in your clitoris. That sounds like a lot. They have, a guarantee, they have an orgasm guarantee. Oh! It doesn't work for you. You get to mail, you can mail it back. Oh, hey, How do they validate that? Yeah, satisfaction. That's like the most like pure, like real form of satisfaction you need. And the womanizer. Yeah. Womanizer. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I do have to run to see clients too this afternoon, this evening. Still. Yes. Thank you for having me. No, thank you. Honestly. Yeah, I feel like we've kept you far yeah. too long, but this has but, been really, yeah. really wonderful. I'm so glad. Yeah, feel free to um, give my name to other folks if you have other resources or people or want me to come do more things. Wow. Thank you. Yeah, thank you so much. Thank you, Andy. And uh, honestly, I've learned like so much in this <laughs> however long it's been and you're you're the best okay all right meet you all okay, all right okay. Take cheers care. thanks angie bye in portland bye. lady <laughs> well, that was great <laughs> i was unbelievable that was really good yes I, i'm overwhelmed I am, I am very overwhelmed um I feel like overall, I, I, I think that the relationships between like monogamy and, and poly relationship or non-monogamous relationships, the, they're pretty much the same, except for the, it, to me, it sounds like a non-monogamous relationships are just a lot more respectful and honest with each other and mm -hmm. just kind of easier. It, they've gotten better, at least it, it kind of knowing yeah. what they want and, and, and communicating that. And I feel like even for like, I'll speak for Maggie and I going into this, we were kind of like, but how is it? How does it work? You know, how is it, how is it practical? Practical. Like sometimes it's hard to manage just one person's emotions. Um, so I feel like it shed a lot of light on how this is like super doable if yeah. that's what you're looking to pursue. Right. You've just being conditioned, you know, into thinking it's just one way. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So I got to listen to that at least two, three more times. Yes, and absolutely. just let it sink right into my bones because, damn. Lots to think she's about. She's so grateful. Yeah. Yeah. So grateful. And that's the thing, too, is that she's she's talking about the ideals, I think. Like, mm -hmm. when she's a therapist and that she advises people on how to do it. Not right, but better. Better. Right, sure. Yeah. But she ignored. What I liked is that she was humble. Mm. She, and she knows that we're all just human. We're all just trying to figure yeah. it out. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. As we said. So. Just do the best you can. I like that she said that. Yeah. Mm. Also, just like from her background as well, like what she did with that and, and where she, she's come from and now like giving back in like another way is just like amazing as a person. Yeah. I mean, definitely she didn't have the easiest journey so it's awesome that she can share that with other people because there's people in the world that will take a lot from that so yeah, yeah. really cool no doubt awesome well, well good stuff gals happy we could do this yeah cheers, oh, yeah. cheers. cheers. Yeah. <laughs>